Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. My name is Patrick Francie, and I'm the CEO and managing partner of the Real Estate Investment Network. In addition to being a business owner, I'm also a real estate investor. I'm a coach, a husband, recently a grandfather. Now, along with that, I'm also committed to stretching beyond what I've achieved by continuing to elevate in living a fulfilled life by making a positive difference in my world. I'm going to invite you to join me as I delve into the details of the many wins of my guests in achieving their goals, along with, shall we say, the frustrations of the occasional deal gone wrong, because my guests are here to help you learn by talking about what's real for them in business and investing in real estate, from the life they're now able to live to the person they become along the way as they pursued their dreams in having the freedom they've gained by building a sustainable financial future for them and their family. Good day, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to this episode of the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. Before I introduce my guest, I'd like to start by first thanking you for listening in and for your support and the feedback you provide us on the show, as well as to encourage you to continue to send your comments, your suggestions, or your questions directly to me at CEO at reincanada.com. That is CEO at reincanada.com. And if you're inclined, I'd really appreciate it if you were to share this show with your friends, with your family, with people you know, and certainly share it with people you don't know. Rate the show and comment on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or whatever platform you happen to use to listen in. And while you're at it, please follow us on the Everyday Millionaire Facebook page where you can like, share, comment. I hang out there and uh, happy to interact. So thanks again for the feedback you provide the team and I. It is sincerely appreciated. Now, let's get this show started. My guest today, Jared Vaughn, is a young man, but a longtime Rain member and real estate investor. He and his wife, Ashley, have three young children that they're incredibly proud of where they live in Vancouver. He's an urban farmer, a musician, and definitely an adventurer. But I have to say that I'm sure you're about to discover in this conversation with Jarrett that any description I may give you in this introduction will never do justice to all that he does or what he's done, and more importantly, to who he is. So having said all of that, here's some further Coles notes about Jarrett. Before graduating from Capilano University with a bachelor's degree in tourism management, Jarrett started his first entrepreneurial venture running charter buses to a local ski hill. After facing many challenges in his business, including the bankruptcy of the ski hill, Jarrett looked to refocus his passion for business by gaining further educational knowledge. Following graduation, Jarrett experienced a financial waking and started a real estate investing company, Blue Aspect Properties, in BC and Alberta, which focuses on long-term wealth development for his investors. And he also owns Vancouver City Plumbing. Jared spent 10 years working in the luxury hotel business, including four seasons hotels and resorts. He is currently an adjunct professor at UBC Sauter School of Business and Langara College, where he teaches marketing. He's worked in marketing and guest experience consulting on projects in France, UK, Switzerland, Morocco, Mauritius, and here in Canada. Jared holds a Master's of Arts in Tourism and Leisure Management from University of Brighton in UK, 
and a master's of science in tourism management from Ecole de Management de Normandie in France. How's my French? And without any further delay, like I say, does not do justice to who this young man is. Let's get this show started. Please listen in. Jared Fun, welcome to the Everyday Millionaire Podcast, my friend. Good to have you on the show. It's a real privilege to be with you today. So, Jared, I'm going to open up the conversation as I always do. Give me your 60-second elevator speech when somebody walks in and says, Jared, what do you do? Well, I am a dad. I got three kids, young kids, two, four, and five years old. I uh, teach university, teach marketing at University of British Columbia, Sauter School of Business, and Langara College. I am an entrepreneur. I own a uh, small plumbing company here in Vancouver, and I also have had a, a real estate investment company for about 12 years. I'm super passionate about the outdoors. I backcountry ski a lot. I surf as much as I can. And uh, I'm an urban farmer here in Kitsilano in Vancouver. I got a few chickens, a couple of beehives, greenhouse, a little garden. And so just love being outside and being with my family and, and, and adventuring around the uh, southwestern areas of British Columbia. Wow. Okay. That sounds, that just about made me tired <laughs> as you were talking about it. So um, we can dig into a lot of places, but I'm going to start with some real estate because um, I know you and we certainly have gotten to know each other through RAIN, uh, through the Real Estate Investment Network. And uh, you started your real estate investing journey at some point. Give me a little bit of background about your real estate investing journey and, and how did you get to be a RAIN member and how did that all start to come together? Yeah, my, my dad was a businessman. He was one of the first McDonald's owners in Western Canada um, back in the 70s and owned his restaurant for about 30 years. And And I, I always heard about real estate, about the success of McDonald's was, was based on the real estate investments they made. And uh, as a franchise owner, he didn't own the land or the building in which the restaurant was on. And uh, he spoke quite highly of Red Croc's decision to hold the land and become the second largest landowner in the entire world after the Catholic Church. And this is a narrative I heard uh, throughout my younger years. And uh, as uh, I graduated uh, college and got married in my early 20s, decided I'd buy a townhouse with my, my wife just before we got married. And it went up in value before we... We bought it as a pre-build, and it went up for val- up, up in value quite quickly. And uh, I was I was quite fascinated with this. Uh, shortly after we got married, we went on a trip to Costa Rica, and we landed in Houston on a layover. And uh, there was a book in one of those airport bookstores called Rich Dad Poor Dad. And this is the the journey of so many real estate investors that I hear. I had heard about this book from some you know friends, parents thought, oh, I should read this in Costa Rica. So I read it and I just couldn't believe it. I, I just, I was, I was trying to start little businesses and I read this and I thought, wow, like real estate investing, how, how have I not like landed on this? So did some research, heard about rain, joined rain when I was, you know, 24 and, um, and then started, started acquiring assets slowly, but surely over the, over the last 12 years. Now, first thing, you know, I got to say is that your dad owned a McDonald's franchise. Does he still own it? Did he sell? What what happened there? So my dad um, sold the restaurant in the mid nineties uh, after he owned it for around 30 years. Wow. And, um, and he only owned the one restaurant the entire time, but it was, uh, if you're familiar with the area, it was on the highway in Chilliwack. 
Mm-hmm. And that was a really successful location uh, for the times in which he, he owned it, still is today. And so he sold it um, before I was ever of age to really work there. So I actually never worked at McDonald's, and um, but it did have a big impact on my life. I bet. In, 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 until my dad passed away a few months ago, and until mm. you know the, the, the days in which he died, we, we were eating at McDonald's, and, uh, and I still, although I'm, I'm into urban farming and, and organic food, I, I got to say, there's something about McDonald's food. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I'm certainly sorry to hear about your dad, uh, Jarrett. And now when we go back in my memory banks now, because something that just came up to me is that before real estate, and the reason I'm making this link is I think, as I recall, you have to jog my memory. I think you met my wife, Stephanie, when you were in the hotel industry. You worked for, was it a Four Seasons or a Fairmont? I don't remember right now. And somewhere along the line, you met Stephanie. Now, was that after rain or before rain? I just, I'm going back in my memory banks here to make a link. Yeah, you do. You do have a good memory. Um, I did, I'd worked in the luxury hotel business for about 10 years here in uh, Vancouver and in Tofino. I worked for the Four Seasons Hotels and Resorts, uh, as you mentioned. And I did meet uh, your wife, Stephanie, probably at a rain meeting eventually. And she was a, a, a business coach or personal coach. And I asked her if she could help me out because I was interested in leaving the hospitality business and getting into teaching. I had gone back to grad school. Um, I did two master's degrees uh, at a couple universities in Europe. And I wanted to start teaching. And, uh, and she actually really helped me. And, th- and this, this really is true. She really is the one individual I can credit with allowing me to shift my mindset to allow me to understand how, as a 29-year-old, I could become uh, an instructor at university and start teaching, even though my age was, was far, far less than uh, anyone else who, was, who I knew that was teaching. Well, that's cool. And, and she listens to podcasts. So I'm, I'm sure she'll be happy to hear that. Not that she doesn't know that already. I'm sure you've communicated that with her. But So tell me a little bit about more. Let's go back to the real estate for now, because you've got a lot of things I want to talk to you about today. And uh, I mean, you've got a very full life and I'm hearing that and that's great. So tell me a little bit more about your real estate investing journey. So you join Rain at 24 years old. You're in the, uh, the uh, hotel industry and you're decided that you're going to build a real estate portfolio because uh, real estate's kind of turned you on. So tell me a little bit about, and you'd bought a townhouse, made some money on it. Now, where did you buy the townhouse? Was that in Chilliwack? Yeah, I bought the townhouse in Chilliwack and uh, that was just personal residence yeah. and, and the value went up and we took out a uh, home equity line of credit on it and bought another house down the street, a, uh, a single family house with a, with a basement suite, moved into it and uh, rented out that townhouse. And then, um, and then we moved to Europe and I went to grad school. And at the same time, I started trying to raise capital and, and, and bought an, another place with some of that equity in Red Deer with a, with a friend. We both split the, uh, the down payment. So then all of a sudden, I was like, I don't know, I guess I was 25 or something and in three properties with, with four doors. And, and then I, I just chatted to friends, you know, like, hey, you know, properties were a lot cheaper back then. And, uh, you know, got a bit of money. Let's, you know, partner up. And, and I started raising capital and, and being and looking for money partners. And, um, and just slowly accumulated, you know, a condo, another condo, a third condo, um, a townhouse here, um, you know, stuff like that. And, and eventually kind of ended up where I'm at with 16 units now, 16 doors, um, in central Alberta and in BC 
and have slowly grown the business to ultimately purchasing a, a small apartment building, um, which was kind of which was my goal uh, to get to that place in in a place where I could start raising capital to purchase small apartment buildings. So I'm going to say again, you've got a lot going on because while you were doing that, you were also going into and becoming a, you know, teaching at university. So how did that fold into your journey as well? I had to learn to reinvent myself. And I think to understand how I am, uh, since I was a, I guess in middle school, 14 or 15 years old, I, I was in school. Um, I was playing competitive hockey. Uh, I'm a musician as well. And so I was playing a lot of music in high school and, um, and I always had one or two jobs or sorry, I always had two jobs at least. And, and I've, so I've always had a, a lot of things going on in my life. I enjoy that. I, I have what's called what I call a portfolio career. I do lots of different things. It's non-conventional and I, I don't work regular hours. I, I, I live a little bit of a different type of life. And so moving through, um, and out of the hotel business into teaching, I had to reinvent myself. I had to, I had to think about how can I go from, you know, an expert in the luxury hotel business into to teaching. And, and so I started from the bottom, I started teaching at a private college in Surrey, which, you know, was okay, but it wasn't where I wanted to be, but I needed to gain experience. And so I started teaching there. And then as the public schools, which is where you want to be teaching, uh, in public education in Canada. And, uh, you know, I hear about a course here. I hear about a course there and I just take them. I just pick up whatever I could. Every evening I could, I'd be teaching at Langara or Capilano or Douglas College or UFV. I'd be driving all over the place just trying to get experience. And, and it was challenging because I'd be teaching random courses. It's a lot of work to teach a course one time. And that was really my focus was to build enough experience to then become fully employed as a, an instructor at a, at a, a good school. And I became full-time at Langara College, which has a great business school. And then I was approached by Sauter School of Business at UBC and, and have been teaching there as well over the last couple of years, and, uh, which has been really exciting because it's one of the top 25 business schools in the entire world right now. It's, a, it's an amazing environment to be in where I'm teaching with some of the best marketing professors in the entire world. And that's a, an extremely inspiring environment to be around. So you've got a lot going on and we haven't even talked about your family life yet. You've got three children and we're going to talk, mm -hmm. I definitely want to talk about that. But you know, the, the interesting part of what I know about you, Jared, and how you show up, I mean, you're, you're young, you got, you know, long flowing blonde hair, you're a bit of a surfer <laughs> dude or a lot of a surfer dude. You're pretty, you're pretty chill and you don't show up as an intense individual at all, at, at least in my experience. And you're pretty chill and you're either on the water surfing or you're snowboarding in terms of activities or you're doing something always with the kids. And what is it? That's an interesting characteristic. Is that, in, is that intentional on your part? Is that something you had to evolve to do? Or are you way more intense than you appear to be? No, I don't think I'm very intense. Uh, what I am is extremely strategic. Um, I'm, I, I think through everything I do and I'm... I have a high value for my time. And so I have a real hard time relaxing and sitting still. It's not, it, it, it's something that I've really struggled to do over the years. For example, like to sit down and read a book for me is like really difficult. It's a real mission for me to, to get through a book. It could take me forever. Uh, and so my mind moves a lot, but, but as an individual, like you said, you know, when, when I'm meeting someone like at a coffee shop who I've never met before, I, I tell them, you know, I'm the surfer looking guy that's what I appear to be. And, um, and, and it, it is, 
who I am uh, as a musician and as an outdoor adventurer. This is who I am. However, it, it does confuse people because the way that I look doesn't necessarily align with the way that I, uh, that I lived part of my life, but I'm very passionate about everything I do. And I do it because I love to do it, not because I'm, I have to fit into a mold and, and understanding the, the mold or the rat race or whatever you want to call it, understanding that there are certain individuals that just don't fit in that. And that I was one of that was really helpful for me to learn. I struggled sometimes in the hotel business to kind of just go to work and do that day in and day out. And I learned that I was really good at a couple things in the hotel business. And that's the only reason I was successful. I was just really good at connecting with either celebrities or, or really wealthy individuals. And I, and I figured out how to, how to make them feel comfortable and how to just be real with them. And figuring out these really intricate, important details about my personality that I didn't have to fit the mold, that I didn't have to work nine to five, that I could, you know, look the way I wanted, you know, be an urban farmer and a, and a backcountry skier and raise kids and just do all this stuff that doesn't necessarily align and still love life and be successful at it. It took a while to figure out, but once I kind of got in my stride, I was like, you know, this, this actually can, this can work. And it takes a little bit for people to get it, but there's also a lot of intrigue around that from individuals. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you, there is intrigue because, you know, you kind of remind me of the, you know, the, the duck on the water, right? It's like all chill and smooth floating around <laughs> and his legs are like really motoring to get things going. Right. So yeah. I, I'm always interested in my guests because, you know, the, the theme of my show has always been about seemingly ordinary people achieving extraordinary results. And when I think about how, you know, you're still young. What are you? 35 years old, 37, 36, yeah. 36 years old. I mean, so my question is, is that how did you, you know, how did you turn out this way? You know, you did, you come out the shoot this way or did, was it all, you know, was it also a part of just your environment and how you were raised? So as a child growing up, your dad was a, an entrepreneur, a business owner, McDonald's in this case, a restaurant owner. And was your mother also a entrepreneur? Like, where did you get this entrepreneurial spirit? And, and also, where did you get on the path of self-discovery at such a young age? Because it's often, it, there's very few, I, that's my, my view of the world, in general, at, at 25, 23, you know, it's not a normal course for that age group to go on a journey of self-discovery. So take me back and talk a little bit about your upbringing. Were you raised in British Columbia? Your dad was entrepreneur. Where was your mom in that picture? And, and how do you think you kind of evolved to be where you are today? Yeah. So I was raised in Chilliwack, British Columbia. Uh, my dad, um, was from Nova Scotia and went to university in Southern California. And, uh, that's kind of where he picked on the, up on the McDonald's thing and had an opportunity to open a McDonald's in Canada and, and ended up in Chilliwack and, and, um, and met my mom. She's born and raised in Chilliwack and, uh, and then had, uh, my brothers and I. I've got four brothers and four of us are one year apart. And so we, we lived in a fairly competitive environment and we were really into athletics and, and, uh, myself in particular, I was quite into music as well. And we were really involved in our church in Chilliwack growing up. And I continued to be involved, um, in our, in, in our church as a musician. And, um, I had the opportunity to tour as a musician in Europe and uh, around parts of Canada. And uh, I think that part of, part of what you see in me is a, a creative 
you know, bohemian kind of thing happening, which really kind of is where my musical roots come from. Um, and our parents were always very encouraging of us to get out there and experience life and get in front of life to not allow, you know, time to pass by sitting at home, um, or watching TV or whatever, but, but to get outside and explore an adventure. And so we traveled a lot as kids, we pushed the boundaries because my dad was the type of person who didn't really understand that rules applied to him. And so there were many situations growing up where as a kid, you're embarrassed of your parents especially because of my dad would push the boundary. So I'll give you a couple examples. I remember as a kid, we were visiting JFK's house and my dad and my four brothers and I and our mom snuck on the property to go see the house. Now, I don't think that's a normal thing that people do to a former presidential home and with a whole bunch of little kids, like we're like six, seven, eight, nine, ten years old, you know? And, and then we got kicked out and that's just kind of what our childhood was like. It was always about getting into places you couldn't get to and trying to figure out a better way. And, and as a kid, it's like, come on, like, why do we got to be like this? And then you, then you become a teenager and you're like, Oh, I'm an adventurer. I love adventure. I, I seek it. I want to push the boundaries. I want to do the abnormal. I want to seek that which is not uh, typical of most people. And then you got four brothers that are, you know, always behind you, pushing you, and you're competing. And and I'm the second oldest, and 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 so there's there's a lot of competition there. And 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 so it become it makes for an interesting upbringing. You know, my mom is a stay at home mom. She she raised us. My dad didn't really work that much because he owned his restaurant for so long. He didn't necessarily go to work every day. He was around all the time, taking us to hockey and going on trips and and doing stuff like that. So it was a it was a different upbringing. And I think another important characteristic of, of our upbringing was that there was no financial support from our parents. So when I wanted to buy a car, I had to buy a car. I, I, they didn't give me a loan. They didn't buy it for me. We all paid for our own university. We all bought our own houses. We, we, we had no financial support, which really over the years has frustrated me because I think I would be so much farther ahead in one way. And then in the other way, I'm not sure that I would be. And I think that is, that was a big learning experience was to, to kind of understand the self-made aspect of our life and how, how important that really is. You know, as a 60 year old grandfather and father, of course, is that I believe 100% that it's one thing to help your children a little bit and encourage them and uh, perhaps be a safety net financially occasionally, but what makes you who you are and the reason you are who you are today is because your parents didn't do that. That's just my own view and my own philosophy in life Mm -hmm. is as parents, we want to really support our kids, but if we don't allow them to fall down and actually hurt themselves, they never learn how to pick themselves up and, uh, take it back on, take life on again. And so I think it's a, you know, and, and whether you see it or not, I mean, I think it's a, you're a perfect example of a situation where your parents could have probably supported you well financially, but because they didn't, and they taught you how to stretch and how to push the envelope and cross boundaries and fall down and have to make your own way. It's actually what sets you up for all you're doing today. So I, that's how I see it as slightly older and <laughs> different view of the world perhaps and uh so that's cool so thanks for sharing that that's that's really that's really great insights into it now tell me a little bit about your family you've got 
uh, three children. How long have you been married? And uh, tell me a little bit about your background, because you've got some some really, when we talk about challenges and stretching boundaries, I mean, you're actually a representative of that, of that statement in a, in, a, in, a, in a really profound way, because uh, you've got some stuff going on with one of your children. So tell us a story about your kids and, and your wife and getting married, because I think that's really fascinating and such a great message. Yeah, one day I was at music practice at church. I think I was 20 and she was 17 or something like that. And she was a piano player and I was a drummer and um, literally walked in to music practice. Never, never saw her before. Went to a big church and she was in the youth band and I was in the kind of the, the, the main band. And, and so she was playing piano and so started chatting and, and started dating shortly after. And, and uh, we, neither of us had ever dated anyone before. We're really kind of unique in that way. Neither of us had an interest in high school of really kind of finding a boyfriend or girlfriend. And so when we met, we were both, it was the first time either one of us had been in a relationship at all. And so that was a really unique way to start. And so we dated for a couple of years and I was, then I started university shortly after a little bit late and, and was really pushing to get graduate because I wanted to get married. So I did my degree in three years, went to summer school, you know, took six courses at a time did my degree in three years so we could get married and, and got married in our early twenties. And, uh, Ashley and I shortly after we started dating, got in a big car accident and someone hit us head on a drunk driver hit us head on and she got pretty beat up. And, and so the first few years of our relationship, she really suffered from a lot of pain, uh, back pain, especially. And so we were really, you know, working with natural paths and trying to work that out. And as an adventurer, that was really frustrating. Like we want to get outside and do stuff. And, and, and she, she suffered a lot and, and eventually really got a lot of help and, and was able to recover. And, um, we decided we didn't really want to have kids right away. We wanted to travel and we moved to Europe and I went back to school, went to grad school and, and our parents just never understood why we weren't having kids. And they were convinced that we couldn't have kids. And I, I, I remember a conversation with my parents where they were like, can we help you with adoption or, you know, IVF or something, you know, why aren't you having kids? Because growing up in the Fraser Valley, it's normal to get married young and it's normal to have kids right away. Sure. It's certainly not that everyone does it, but our parents were like, we want grandkids. And so, <laughs> so we were working and doing whatever. And, no pressure, and then, but damn, yeah, I want grandkids. No pressure, <laughs> but can you please sort this out? And so, um, you know, which was, which was very generous of our parents to want to support us in that way. And so then we eventually, we lived in, in France and, and, and lived in Tofino working in hotels and, and ended up in Vancouver. And I was working for four seasons and kind of thought, you know, we need, we need a switch. We want to start having kids and the hotel business is tough. You know, I'm working in luxury hotels. I'm working with uh, celebrities, long evenings, weekends, long hours, all that kind of stuff. And, and really at the demand and beck and call of, of the hotel and, and the VIPs and stuff. And so, and I'm managing an apartment and I need to make sure the staff are doing well. And so, so I decided to, to start teaching and, and, and the part of that was so that we could have kids and live a normal life. So we got pregnant and, and had, a had our son venture venture's name is venture valor atlas and uh, he's five then we a couple years later we had a, a daughter named sailor winter rain uh sailor has just turned four and then we had a couple years ago we had a, another son his name is wilder ocean thunder and so patrick we wanted to have creative names for our kids but we didn't necessarily have the capacity to come up with the creative names we wanted to so as a marketing professor i thought i'm going to come up with a campaign to come up with good names and so 
I offered anyone a $25 7-Eleven gift card if they came up with a name that we would use. And everyone would say, why 7-Eleven? And I said, well, that's exactly the point. I, I, it's 7-Eleven because I want you to talk about it because it's kind of weird, you know? Like, why don't you give me a gift card to Tim Hortons where I actually want to go? And, and what am I going to do with 7-Eleven gift cards? And, 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 and that, that, that kind of got the hype going. So people would give us all these interesting names. And, and naming your kid is like one of the only times in life where you really get to shape the destiny of someone, either for the bad or for the good. And so we thought, we'll give our kids, you know interesting names. And that way, if they get famous one day, they don't have to change them to something more interesting, right? Um, we'll try to set them up for uh, a world <laughs> for their, of being a for social their, media yeah, for, influencer, For being right? famous, sure. Yeah, okay, got uh, it. Just what you want of your kids, of course, to, to get famous and get into that cycle. But you know, when we were pregnant with our daughter, Sailor, um, there were some challenges with her. And and we we were facing, at 20 weeks, she seemed to stop growing. And uh, I'm going to tell you a, a bit of a crazy story here. And she, she stopped growing Friday afternoon. We finished the ultrasound and they were like, you know, you're probably going to lose the baby this weekend. Amniotic fluid has dropped and um, there doesn't look like there's any hope that you're going to recover from this. Um, she's, she's, the baby's not doing well. So we went home that weekend, pretty distraught and uh, called a couple of people from our church and asked them to come pray for Ashley, which was Sunday night. And uh, she was wearing a, a button down shirt and as we prayed for her, the craziest thing I've ever seen in my entire life happened is that her, her belly actually grew in front of our eyes. It actually got bigger. And it was, and she felt something in her. And we went to the ultrasound on Monday because we had scheduled an ultrasound. And they looked and they said, your baby is, is at normal size. This doesn't, like, it didn't really make any sense. And, and so, you know, we believe that we experienced a miracle at that time. The doctors continued to monitor closely and did almost 20 ultrasounds over the next, let's say, 17 weeks of pregnancy, and everything was looking pretty good. But when Sailor was born, to our surprise and to the doctor's surprise, she had significant physical disabilities. She had a broken leg. She was paralyzed from the waist down. She couldn't move her legs. She had club feet, torticollis, plagiocephaly. You know, the, the list goes on of the challenges that she faced that we learned about over the following, mostly the following two weeks, but over the next six months, we really started to learn about what was going on. They did a couple spinal surgeries to see what they could do with her spinal cord, which wasn't firing into her legs. Um, she was in casts to correct her club feet for six months. She had to wear a helmet to correct the shape of her head. She had a whole setup to correct her broken leg when she was born. You know, it was, we couldn't hold her. We had to pass her around on a pillow because we couldn't actually cradle her because of her broken leg. She had hip dysplasia, meaning both her hips were out of joint. It was just a real mess. And after the C-section, the, the doctor came over to me and said, or sorry, the midwife came over to me and said, your daughter's going to have to have leg braces. And I, I almost passed out. Uh, like I, I couldn't believe it. Like I was just like, what? Like leg braces. And to give you a backstory, I'm pigeon toed and I had leg braces when I was a kid, kind of like Forrest Gump, but not like really bad, not like what my daughter's in. But uh, that's just what I imagined as a, you know. And then they said uh, her umbilical cord was tied around her ankle. And so she's got like a mark. And I just remember thinking, this is so sad. My daughter's going to grow up with like a mark on her leg and she's. She's going to, you know, she's never going to look like all the other kids. Now, I didn't know at that time that the mark on her leg was the least of our concerns. Like now we're talking that she can't even move her legs. So 
um, it was really challenging at the beginning. And, and what was, what added to this is at the same time that I was in the hospital, I was closing on my first apartment building and, and that added to the pressure. The timing of it just didn't work out. We got delayed by a month and all of a sudden I'm in the hospital having a kid and I'm signing, I was literally signing contracts with Barry McGuire while I was in BC Children's Hospital in between surgeries. That's not an exaggeration. That's exactly the way it was. It was so stressful. And uh, the deal was, you know, working out and, 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 it, and, it, and we did fully close on the deal while I was in the hospital, um, while she was born for the first couple of weeks. And so it was intense, but you know, we had a vision, we were going forward and, um, we were battling with this, this disappointment. How as a family who is adventurous, can we now go skiing and hiking and camping and surfing when it looks like our daughter won't walk? And so over the next few months, it got more complicated. She started getting sick. She got pneumonia. She got uh, meningitis twice. She was hospitalized, let's say eight or 10 times for about a week at a time for just getting sick. And uh, her immune system didn't look good. Sometimes yeah, I thought, you know, she's going to die. There was one time where she had the flu. She almost died in the hospital in the emergency room. And I, I was just like, what is going on with our life? You know, we're, we can barely hold it together here. And um, so in the first 18 months of her life, she had 160 doctor's appointments as they tried to figure out what was wrong with her. Why do her legs not move? Why does she have torticollis, which means her neck is tilted? Why does she have um, hip dysplasia? Why are her hips out of place? Like all these questions. And, and the surgeons with, you know, 75 years combined experience between the two of them just didn't know. And we're an amazing hospital and um, it was heartbreaking for us. And there were many nights of crying and many days of just asking God, like, why, why did you allow her to survive the pregnancy for this? And it was confusing and frustrating. And, you know, as time progressed, she starts, you know, getting older and we start learning more about her and we find out she can feel pain in her legs. She can feel sensation. We then learn she can feel, sorry, she can control her bowels and bladder. And this is, this is great news because that changes the quality of life dramatically for a person with disabilities, if they can control their bowels and bladder. And it's super unusual for someone who's paralyzed to be able to do that. She gets a little wheelchair at nine months old instantly within two minutes knows how to use it. It's like she was born for it. And she starts racing around Kitsilano and, and just loving life, going to Kitsilano pool, going to the beach. And we start getting involved with the community of, uh, with families with kids with disabilities, learning about what life is like. And, and today she's four. She can't move her legs. She's in a wheelchair. She's a vibrant young girl. She's got lots of publicity around her on the news, Vancouver Park Board, as they um, build programs and, and struggle with accessibility in the city. And she's become a champion of that. She won the Hero of Ability Award with the Center of Ability, which is a provincial government organization, um, which, which she was awarded for a kid who has exceeded the expectations from her doctors because they never thought she'd feed herself. They never thought she would be able to um, move in and out of her wheelchair. They never thought she'd propel herself in her wheelchair. Um, and she's gone above and beyond. But the adversity we faced has been, it just, I, I don't even understand why we're in this situation. And I don't, if you would have asked me five years ago, could you handle it? Like, there's no way I could handle it. There's no way I could handle it. But here we are. Last year, uh, we went to Nicaragua for a month. We thought, you know what? Let's see, can we travel to the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere? A country with very little paved roads and no sidewalks, with a kid in a wheelchair. Can we go to a poor country and have an amazing time? And uh, it was incredible. 
We faced incredible um, riots. The government was overthrown while we were there. The country went into a, a massive, um, a massive upheaval. Uh, we were within a couple blocks of, <laughs> of getting caught in a riot, and and um, and she loved it. All our kids loved it. It was amazing. We we had an, an incredible time there, and we were able to to push the boundaries of what a three year old in a wheelchair can do. And seeing her perform in an uncomfortable environment for her. And it was amazing to see our son step up and push her around in the wheelchair and make sure she's okay and taken care of and, and just understanding how you face adversity and, and overcome it no matter what odds are against you. I mean, that story is incredibly fascinating and inspiring and lots of questions in all of that. You know, I want to go back to that time, you know, I mean, you obviously have a very strong faith, and and that's that's great. Uh, but was what were you faced? Were you at times, Jared, were you and your wife feeling like victims to this all? Like I know you at some point you're questioning God and why this would be happening, and are you at some point just you know questioning life and the universe in general? And and or did you get to a point where can you recognize where you felt really victimy around it? And did you have? And obviously, if you did, you would have to get through that, but. How to let, let, let's go back there only because I want to know what was the kind of the self-talk you were having? What kind of conversations were you having to keep yourselves moving forward on a regular, like on a day-to-day basis, hour to hour basis at times, I'm sure. Yeah, that's a good question. I think, and that's really what it was like. Sometimes let's just get through the next hour, you know, let's get, let's get through this round of medic- medication or, or whatever. And then, and then let's deal with the next hour when we get there kind of thing. That was a challenge. Um, to answer your question specifically, I don't think we ever felt like a victim. Um, I think what we felt, or sorry, I think what we knew is we were presented with an incredible opportunity, but we didn't feel like we were, but we knew we were. And, and getting from the place of understanding something to where like your emotions are caught up with it was quite challenging. Um, I think when you have the privilege of raising a child with disabilities in the early days, it's terrible there's, there's no hope. There's no future. All you think about is I can't do this. I can't do that. And then, you know, day three happens and a a little, a little light, a little shining light, some nurse says something to you about how cool your life is going to be, or some doctor gives you a glimmer of hope and you hang on to that until the next challenge you face. And, and, and I think, I think one of the best things we did to help was that we made it really public and we allowed ourselves to walk this journey with everybody we're really active on social media. And so we posted stuff a lot. We made our life really real. We didn't glamorize anything. We didn't water anything down or make it more than it was. We just were trying to be really honest with what we were facing. And our community of friends, a lot of them from our church gathered and rallied around us and supported us through this. Whether that was like, we're on our way to the hospital because, you know, she can't breathe and we, someone's got to take our other kid, you know, and, and friends show up to the hospital to take them and they bring you dinner and lunch and, and they're there at the hospital, just, you know, supporting you or just people sending you messages. And I think the community around it was so important for us to know that, you know what, we're not facing this alone. This actually becomes the village helping us raise our child because raising a child with disabilities is like that. One other thing about that, we're raising a child with physical disabilities. She has no cognitive disabilities. Uh, cognitively, she's totally typical. She's really smart, actually. And 
for families who are raising children with mental disabilities, the challenges they face are far greater than the challenges that we face. And we would see that every day in the hospital. So when you see a family who's dealing with maybe a child with autism who has really challenges, sensory challenges, and they're, you know, they're freaking out in the hospital, yelling or screaming or hitting their parents, and we're sitting there thinking our life is hard. And then you're like, you know what? Our life isn't that hard. You know what? There are, there are people who are facing much more adversity than we are. And we're just so thankful that she can get in and out of her wheelchair, that she can go to school um, and she can play, uh, even though she has physical limitations. You know, there's so much in that. You know, one of the things that I picked up on for me in that particular uh, part of your conversation, Jared, is that back at that time, you saw it as a, an opportunity, although you couldn't see it as an opportunity. You, you knew it and you trusted it was going to be, you know, the opportunity to raise a, a, a child with physical uh, disabilities. And there is that part, I think, in life in general, whether with, through any adversity where you have to trust that whatever you're going through right now is going to, in fact, uh, make you better. It's just that we can't be attached to how it's going to look and the outcome. That was something that I think, you know, that for me, that's because that actually is something I believe. The other part of what you said was being on the social media, you know, it does take a village to raise a child. And I think where I always get to the degree I know you is that you always show up as being authentic. And I go back to that. Is that part of your faith? I mean, you, you're, you're a very smart dude, you know, no doubt about that. You're, you're intellectual, but you really do speak from your heart. Now, is that, are you wired that way? Were you always wired that way? Or is that a practice? Does that come from your faith? Is that intentional? Are you really dialing into how you're feeling about any given thing and in terms of being authentic and being in your heart? Is that, is that how that is for you? I think what's important is that I think what you're asking me is where is my identity found? Identity is a, a real challenge in society today. Uh, there's a lot of questions about identity. We hear about identity politics and we, um, and I think especially as millennials are trying to figure out who we are and because we're not happy with who we are, we, we do things to make our life seem better or more interesting than it is because we want to be perceived as something we're not, because uh, we're not comfortable with who we are. We don't know who we are. And um, when it comes to identity, it's very difficult for someone who has an identity and then loses that. So uh, I'll give you an example. If, if I have an identity as an adventurer, uh, I, I, I surf and I backcountry ski and I hike and I, and I get out there and then I have a kid with disabilities and, I, and now I can't do that anymore. Am I still Jarrett? Am I still who I am? And that's been taken away from me. So, or what if my real estate business collapses? Am I still a business person? What if I get fired as a professor? Am I still an educator? And I think what's important is that we don't put our identity into these roles we play in life. And, and, I, and I think learning early on in life that my identity isn't found in my performance or what I do. You know, if, I, you know, if I'm a day laborer, then I'm a day laborer, but that's not who I am. That's not where my identity is found. And if I'm, if I'm extremely wealthy, that's also not where my identity is found. And so your question about faith becomes really, really important. And yes, it is my faith that allows me to try to be as authentic as I can. Certainly, lots of times I fail at that. And you know, things like my pride gets in the way. But my faith allows me to, to kind of have a plumb line or uh, a, a direction in which 
is always true and will always be true. And that's who I am. I am, I believe that, you know, I'm a, I'm, I'm a son of God. I'm saved by, by God. I'm, I'm, you know, I have a relationship with Jesus Christ and these things don't change. And so when you have a kid with disabilities or your business goes bankrupt or, or, or your father dies or whatever it is, these things happen, but they do not shape my identity. It's my relationship with God that really does. And, and I, and I, and I feel for a lot of people in, in society, I look at my students, for example, and I think, you know, you're really trying to figure out who you are, uh, the pressures of your parents and society, you know, maybe that's for how you look and, and how much you weigh and, 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 and maybe that's how much money you have and you're never going to find fulfillment in it. I've spent a lot of time talking to people like, you know, successful rain members, like how much money is enough? Like, when do you stop buying real estate? When do you just say, okay, I, I'm done. And that's one thing I learned from my dad. I mentioned earlier, he had one McDonald's restaurant and had plenty of opportunity to open many, many more, but he, he believed that he didn't need to, like there wasn't, there wasn't an, a need to have more money. There wasn't a desire to to build beyond what his goals were. And there wasn't an addiction to success. It was uh, a much, a much greater calling than that. And I think that's sometimes what we need to learn is like, when's enough enough, you know? I think it's a great question. And you're right in the world of real estate investing and, and rain, you, you've probably noticed people should have noticed really, we're not talking about quantity of doors. It's always great to hear somebody share a story about owning a large portfolio and how they got there. But we're more interested in talking about, are you achieving the goals that you want to achieve? Is it creating That's that right. financial future that you want? And a hundred doors of unprofitable real estate is, is sucks. Having 10 doors of really, really profitable real estate is awesome. So, yeah, you know, there, yeah. there is that. And I, and I really like the discussion around identity and who you are and and how we identify or or the attachment we have to that perceived notion of who we are it's and and often it's never what we think people think anyway so it doesn't matter right <laughs> so i mean lots of wisdom in all of that jared and and so thanks for you know thanks for sharing that because it's there is a lot of wisdom in in all of that i i share a brief story you know when you're talking about sailor and the realization that you had with you were at the time thinking about all the physical disabilities and what that meant. And then you're seeing children that are, are mentally handicapped or mentally challenged. And, and you're going, wow, we actually probably are pretty blessed to only have a physical handicap. Mm -hmm. And uh, years ago, a, a good friend of ours, a guy by the name of Aaron Moser was in, uh, actually was playing for trail BC hockey and uh, got hit from behind. Long story short, he's a quadriplegic. And, and we knew Aaron well, and, and he's, a, he's now that was 20-some years ago, and, and he's alive still today, and which is a real miracle in itself from his perspective, mm. because it's not common for quadriplegic. But I always remember, we went over for dinner one night, and we had shared with Aaron, we said, Aaron, you know, there's a story that we share with, you know, students, and Stephanie was teaching skating at the time and working with skaters, and, uh, you know, they complained about how hard skating was. And she'd really get pissed off and she'd go, listen, skating isn't hard. Being a quadriplegic, that's hard. Quit making excuses, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right? And, and oh. so she gave that. So we said to, to Aaron one night, we were over for dinner at his home and, and we said, Aaron, we use you sometimes as a little bit of a kick in the ass inspiration. And we shared with him the story, which is, you know, skating's not hard. Being a quadriplegic is hard. And he responded to us. He goes, no, he goes, Quadri being a quadriplegic isn't hard. Being a quadriplegic on a ventilator 
that's right. hard, right? <laughs> so yeah. you know, here's this guy, he's inspired and still, and he's a quadriplegic. So it's yeah. it's just interesting when we get into the world of disabilities and, and uh, not falling, people who don't fall victim to it are just, uh, uh, that in itself is inspiring. So when we go along and now, you know, four years later, Sailor's doing what she's doing, yeah, you've become a bit of an advocate for uh, disabled. I'm, that's what I kind of am hearing is you spend a lot hmm. of time in that space and supporting others now, Jared? Yeah, you know, I think what we've done is we've been able to uh, kind of learn about the community of families with disabilities, and, and we're still learning a lot. Like, we're really new into this and, and trying to figure out how we can affect change. The city of Vancouver is recognized internationally as one of the best places to live for people with disabilities. and And so, you know, even just advocating and, and working with the park board on, on what, what should be done in the city. I sit on a committee, uh, uh, for the Vancouver, for Vancouver aquatics, making recommendations on kind of aquatics innovations in the city, uh, representing families with disabilities and, and things like that. And, and I think what's great and what's such a blessing is that we live in an amazing city that wants to do great things for its kids. I hear parents all the time, like, oh, whatever, we have old schools in Vancouver and there's no elevators. And it's like, yeah, like the school that Sailor will go to right now has steps everywhere, no elevators, no ramps. And so we're working with the school board to change that. But the great thing is that the school board is, is saying, yeah, like, let's figure out a solution. There's no resistance. There's openness everywhere. And I think that's just so amazing to live in a society where people want the best for your kid. And raising a kid with disabilities is, is kind of funny because you have so much support. It's, it almost is easier in some ways because there's so many programs and things that, they, that, that she can do. And, and oftentimes it doesn't cost any money and, and it's funded or something like that. And you think, like, how, how amazing is this? Um, I think that understanding that disability doesn't form identity is really important. Um, kind of going back to that maybe uh, around identity is that we, we talk a lot about sailor and, and, and the power of language in saying sailor has a disability or sailor is disabled. This is the question, right? Is she disabled or does she have a disability? And the, the difference between is and has is really life-changing for her. Because if I say sailor is disabled. I formed an identity and I said, this is who you are. You know, this, this is you, you are disabled. You will always be disabled. This is who you are. If I say sailor has a disability, or if I say to her sailor, you have a disability, uh, she has blonde hair as well, you know, and, and she, she has legs that don't work and that can change. That can be fixed maybe one day. Maybe we'll experience a miracle. Maybe, maybe she will live in a wheelchair for her whole entire life and just own it. Maybe she'll be the first girl to do a backflip on a wheelchair or the first girl to get on a motorbike and do a backflip and, and, and being, being a paraplegic, whatever it is. But I don't want her to ever be limited by that. I don't want her to be disabled. I want her to have a disability. And the shift in mindset has been so key for us since she was born and understanding that. And I don't, I don't know where that came from. Uh, someone must have said this to us once and it has stuck with me and I cannot get it out of my head. Don't allow society to say you are this. Rather, allow this to be something you have and something you can change. There's a, you know, there's a lot to be said around the language and it's so powerful and you either believe it or you don't, well, maybe it's not that simple, but you know, it's, it's certainly a consideration. It's the difference between saying I am a diabetic or I have diabetes, right? Mm -hmm. It's, it's one of those things where you don't want to own the disease, right? And, mm -hmm. and it's so, so powerful when you start to shift around that. 
Now, tell me a little bit, because we've talked a lot about Sailor, which only would lead me into, and I have never know where these conversations are going to go, by the way, but I'm finding this quite fascinating and interesting, so I'll stay on it a little bit longer for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the, But I'm wondering with the other, your two other children. Now, Sailor, obviously, you know, it takes more attention. It takes more consideration. Are you concerned? or Because I've heard this from others. That's why I'm asking the question. Is do you feel that the other kids at some point may resent all the attention she gets or how do you include them? And, and I guess that's where I'll go with the question right now. How is that in your family dynamic? Yeah, that's something we think about a lot. Um, how do we make sure that venture and wilder feel yeah, that they get enough attention. And so we'll do different things. Like for example, venture and I, he's, he's five. So he's older. Him and I go skiing uh, a lot in the winter, like this afternoon, uh, we're going to go skiing together. And, um, so I try to, we try to do things separately with them and there's things that Sailor can't do. And so like, she can't go skiing and she won't be able to ski until she's at least six years old is when programs for kids with disabilities start. And so I don't want venture and not be able to do things because she can't do it. And so we do things separately a lot. And actually, Ashley and I are advocates of doing things separately all the time. Like we'll actually take even travel separately. Like she went to, to Europe last summer, um, by herself. And, and that's a big part of ensuring that as a family, we have kind of energy so that we're not always around our kids. And so she took a week and went to Barcelona and London, and that's really refreshing for her. And we try to do those types of things to allow ourselves the freedom to travel, um, experience life without our kids around, or even without each other around. And, and that can be a lot of fun. And so we try to do things separately with our kids. And, and I don't think that we know exactly how to do this yet, but I, you raise a really important question that we t- grapple with. How do we make sure that our other kids feel as important and as included when they don't have access to the amazing programs that Sailor does. And that's why I say sometimes raising kids with disabilities can be a little bit easier. You have so much support. And so we do think about that and, and we're always talking to other families. How do you, how do you walk this road and how do you, how do you kind of deal with the fact that your other kids don't get attention currently? there's no problem. Uh, currently venture is an amazing support to her. And, you know, every night he goes to bed and he prays that his little sister's legs will work one day so that she can run around the park. And, and he's very aware and he's very helpful to her, you know, when he's nine years old, maybe that won't be the case, but we're sure enjoying it right now. <laughs> I bet, I bet. And, and wild wilder. Wilder. He's sorry. only two. Wilder's only two. And right, so, so he's you know, he's not, fully aware. It wasn't really until Sailor was probably three that she even knew her legs didn't work really. Like she all of a sudden noticed she's like, Hey mommy, how come my legs don't work? And that was the first time she ever mentioned it. And her friends are only just starting to notice it. And so as a two-year-old, he's still unaware of, of really any of this time of stuff. Sure. You know, it's interesting. The names for your children, I, I, I meant to say is that, uh, in my world, I would ask if that your children were raised at a time of Woodstock and, yeah, totally. <laughs> you know, that's what it is. And I once, uh, I once had a, a young man working for me years ago at my retail stores in Edmonton, and uh, his name was Sky. And, yeah, I love that. And and his his one of his daughters' names, or not his daughters, one of his sisters' name was Cloud, and the others, was, the other name was Meadow. And I went, what? Were your parents from Woodstock? He goes, he goes, no. He says my dad's the head of paleontology in in. Uh, drum heller and and that's just the way they think so i'm going okay anyway interesting and uh and i think it's awesome but anyways just we digress so quickly so you're you're you know i'm hearing a lot of you know some cool philosophy and you and uh your wife doing the 
you know, looking after yourselves and, and making sure that you're, you know, you really are the source and the hub of all of your life. And you need to keep reserves, keep your energy, keep your mind and emotional state solid. So you've got all those things in place. You know, you're talking about Nicaragua, travel, Barcelona, London. I'm led to into the question of how does real estate, for example, does real estate support those initiatives, those journeys? Because I mean, going to London, going to Barcelona, going to Nicaragua, there's costs associated with that. How do you fund your life in that way? Does Has real estate been an important part of that for you, Jared, at this point? Or is it still too early to really tap into that real estate equity? Yeah, that is a good question. I think if you asked me when I started buying real estate, where would I be in 12 years? I would have said I'd be a lot farther ahead than I currently am. Mm. And um, and that is, um, that, is, that is a challenge I face all the time is where my real estate portfolio is, is not where I thought it would be. I thought I'd have more properties and I thought I'd have more profitable properties. But partially, yes, the real estate does help fund our lifestyle. Absolutely. Something else kind of unique is we live um, in Vancouver in kits and we have um, an Airbnb suite in our house. And that allows us to live. We live right on the beach and and that allows us to afford to live because we make really good money off of that. And that has been a huge help for us. We also rent out a spot in our driveway to someone who lives in their van. (laughs) There is no stone left unturned in our life. Uh, If there's an opportunity, we pursue it. And so uh, that's been really, really helpful. So, so part of it is, is real estate. It does allow for some level of freedom, but I don't think I'd be, I'd be not truthful if I said it gives me the amount of freedom I, I thought it would be not because it takes time, but because, sorry, not that it takes my daily time, but because it takes longer to build a real estate portfolio, profitable real estate portfolio than I thought it would. And those are some of the challenges I faced in, uh, in, in real estate investing over the years. Yeah. And that's a great, great point because I think that's an often a misconception. I mean, real estate can make you wealthy very quickly, but you have to apply the right strategy and the right tactic to uh, actually embrace and, and go forward with uh, with that particular result in mind, you know what I do hear in that though is Airbnb and and you know renting your your uh, driveway and I mean those are also real estate tactics and strategies though mm-hmm. you know I'm mm-hmm. sure totally you know if you, if you didn't understand real estate you wouldn't understand the degree of which Airbnb you may not even have saw it as an opportunity without understanding and have the education around real estate firstly secondly definitely a driveway I mean. Very few people without an understanding of real estate investing would ever occur to them to rent out their driveway. I mean, you may <laughs> some you may follow somebody's lead, but that education around that uh, seems to be pretty important. Is that the case for you? I don't want to put words in your mouth, Jared. Oh, it's a combination of real estate investing and working in the hotel business. Um, yeah. Uh, back in 2006, I had an idea to rent out houses um, for the Olympics. And so I built a website called 2010houserentals.com. And this is when I was just getting into real estate investing. And, and this is before Airbnb uh, had started. And so basically, you had a house in Vancouver. You wanted to rent it out for the Olympics. You'd pay me 100 bucks, and I'd list it on my website, kind of like Craigslist. And this was an interesting idea at the time because there was no hotel rooms in Vancouver. And I, and I knew this because I worked in the business the hotels were sold out years in advance. And so started getting all these listings and stuff. And, and that was kind of my foray into understanding home rental from that perspective. And then Airbnb came into play and, and I regret, you know, shutting down that 
website. I probably should have done something with it and could have been a, a competitor or something. I don't know, but I did not have the wherewithal to do that or the vision or really the know-how. And, uh, and then, and then now I get into a house where I'm like, okay, there's space, so, you know, let's make some money. And so, so the, the driveway rental, you know, you drive around Vancouver, see campers all over the place on the sides of the road. So I said, Hey, I live by the beach, you know, 350 bucks a month, park in my driveway and live there. Like that's a great deal. So when I put out a listing, when that, when this guy moves out, I'll get 30 calls right away. And everyone will want to come do that. And it's amazing the demand. You know, people in Vancouver, we talk about two things, the weather and real estate. And real estate is not unaffordable in Vancouver. The reason it's not unaffordable is because of the demand. It's actually really cheap to live in a big house in Vancouver. It's very affordable to rent a mansion and and start parceling it out, either renting out bedrooms or renting out basement suites or driveways or whatever. I don't live in a mansion, but the house is big enough. We have a suite and that's when things get affordable. But most people don't want to do that. Like they don't want to do the extra work. They just want to complain about the cost. It's like, well, you could rent a mansion for $8,000 a month and you could probably pay a thousand dollars in rent after you carve it up and come up with some creative ways. Maybe you got to live with somebody. Maybe you have to have a roommate. Maybe someone's in your driveway or in your garage, you know, but it's doable. And, and I, and I think we've been able to do that because of our understanding of real estate investing and, and the hotel business. Tell me a little bit about your wife, because where does Ashley fit in all this? Is she just, you know, in, is she caught in your wake? And, and I, I, I only say that in that, you know, as a couple, you align, what was her background as entrepreneurial as yours? Was her, where did you find that you aligned in mm-hmm. those values? Because I, you know, I totally hear you when it comes to people complaining, they're not willing to do the extra, you know, really extra 10% sometimes just to make things work in a really powerful way. And then to create it, uh, they have a story around why they don't want to do it. Your, your story is about why we do it and how we do it. Um, That's right. Yeah. Ashley's not involved in our businesses um, uh, at all, really, aside from the Airbnb. What Ashley is involved in is a willingness to take risks and an openness to give it a go, uh, to put up with the BS, to deal with the drama, to, to, to handle the stress. Um, she doesn't work um, out of the home. She takes care of our kids at home and, um, and she's a musician. And so she spends a lot of time playing music. Um, her and I both lead the band at our church, which probably truthfully is what takes most of our time. Um, but it's an incredible life source for us. And so she leads music and she's an incredible, um, singer and piano player. And so we both play music together a lot. And so we spend a lot of time doing that. But what's amazing about her is her willingness to just be like, okay, sure. Like, let's give it a go and let's see how this works out. We always have a, a kind of an au pair living with us, take, help us taking care of our kids so we can kind of do all this type of stuff. It gives us a lot of freedom. And it also gives us time like during the middle of the day to like put the canoe in the ocean and go for a canoe ride or, or go ride our bikes down the seawall and just kind of hang out together without our kids. And, and I think that's a huge blessing that many parents desire. And, uh, you know, we, we, all our kids sleep in one room. So three kids share a room and the sacrifice is, is that sometimes they don't sleep well so that we can have a nanny living with us. And that's been a huge trade-off and that, that helps Ashley a lot with Sailor, with doctor's appointments and, and things like that. You know, I just had this conversation uh, yesterday with uh, a gentleman and we were talking about, we would have got a lesson early on would have been to hire an assistant years ago, like years ago. And we get caught in the, you know, we really do get caught in the cost of hiring an assistant, but the reality of it is, is 
what it allows us to, you know, step into and generate outside of doing the minutiae that an assistant can handle for us and is probably significantly better than. Do you, do you bump up against, um, or I don't want to say bump up against, what's your, what's your observations? Because in my own philosophy in life is that, you know, it is so incredibly important for individuals to look after themselves. And I'll use you and Ashley is that as parents, it could seem from the outside looking in, and this is just my story, but it could seem like you're, you know, maybe being a little bit selfish. You know, you're going on vacations by yourself. You've got a nanny. You know, it's it could be really seen as, a, a, it could be judged. Yet I look at it and go, being selfish as a parent is the most selfless thing that you can actually do because it allows you to be the most powerful you can be. For your family. That's my view of the world is that when we look after ourselves, when we're a mom and a dad, when we, we owe it to our children to do an amazing job of looking after ourselves so we can, in fact, be the best parents we can be for them. Now, that's, that's kind of a, just a Cole's notes of some, you know, how I view the world. As a parent raising a disabled child and with other children, do you see that? Uh, you feel that judgment sometimes, perhaps, and perhaps not in the community that you're that you're in. But also, do you see where parents actually sacrifice their energy, their time, even their health, without realizing that it's a detriment to the support of their family? Yeah, I think the most important relationship in my life is my relationship with my wife, not my kids. Um, my kids are far secondary to her, and so if our relationship collapses, my relationship with my kids collapses as well. And so us having a stable relationship is, um, is far more important than how I raise my kids. Um, and the reason I say that is because out of a successful relationship with my wife, I will successfully raise my children. And so making sure that that, you know, she can go out and, um, go on a vacation once a year with, with her by herself or with a couple of her friends is so life-giving. And when she comes back, she's so much better of a parent and, and having a nanny around to, to help like, clean up and, and do things like that so that we can spend less time cleaning our house, for example, and more time at the beach with our kids is, is so much more important in our, in our view. We get judgment from people all the time, mostly because they are not sure how we live. There's a lot of confusion. Like, you know, you, you, we have, we live by the beach. So we go to the beach a lot, or we're in the mountains a lot. And it's like, but sometimes that's in the middle of the day, in the middle of the week. But what people don't understand, it's like, well, you know, sometimes I get up at five in the morning and work and work or work late at night or work on Saturdays when it's raining. But if it's sunny, I'm outside. And, um, and also the, the idea of outsourcing, like you've explained or getting an assistant or in my world, getting a teacher's assistant to help in as, as a professor, like these are so freeing and so life-giving so that I can do what I'm good at. Like I'm a good lecturer. I'm not great at grading papers. I'm not great at creating material. I know I'm a good lecturer. And so I need to focus my time on that and find the support that I need to do what I'm really good at. And if I do that, then I'll be a much better lecturer rather than figuring out how to become a better marker of papers or a, a better content producer. I, I, I just think that's just really important. Find what you're, what you're good at and become the best at that and, and get the support in to help you with the rest of it. You use the phrase life-giving and, and it's, it really lands well for me. It's, it's not common. It's not that I haven't heard of before and I'm sure many have, but do you actually make your decisions from that place when you're reflecting on 
what you're going to do or that you don't want to do? Are you actually very intentionally asking yourself that question? Is this going to drain energy, oh, yeah. give me energy, you know? It's like one of the most important questions we ask ourselves. And this has to do with relationships as well. Like, who do we spend our time with? What friends are we building life with? Who do we want to spend our vacations with or go camping with or go on, go on a hike with? Who is going to, um, who are we going to spend time with that is going to help build us up? However, it's important to recognize that you can't be selfish in that, in that you only hang out with people that are going to build you up. There are many people in our life that are under our wing as well, that we are trying to provide energy for and that we're mentoring or that we are leading. And that sometimes can be draining. And so you need to kind of offset that. I don't believe that life is a balance and I don't strive for balance at all. I think balance is, you know, unachievable. I think it's uh, something that society has gotten in its head that really isn't even something that we should be achieving for. I, I don't think any successful person has a balanced life throughout their life. Maybe in times you have balance, but there's lots of times where you're working hard and long hours and, and, you know, you're not super healthy and that's part of life. And so balance is not what we're looking for. We're looking for life-giving moments that energize us so that when we're in those intense moments, it's like, Oh no, I can do this because you know what? I can face the surgery. Like sailor has three surgeries coming up in the, in the spring in April, May, and June. That's going to be brutal. She's going to be in casts from her toes up to her knee, up to her waist. For, for two months. And it's going to be incredibly draining. So we're trying to figure out, you know, how do we still, even in that time, be in an environment where life is being brought to us so that we can kind of make it through dealing with a four-year-old in casts on both her legs up to her waist in summer, you know, when we're supposed to be swimming and at the beach, how are we going to deal with that? That's going to be tough. The conversation around mindset and how do you view the challenges or you know, what's your, what's your view, uh, given how you look at the world around the word failure and how do you look at projects or intentions that don't work out the way you wanted to, that somebody else might look at it and say, wow, you just shit the bed on that one. You've totally failed. Or yeah. how do you look at failure? I mean, I fail lots, um, all the time in my relationships. I fail in my, as, as a, as a professor, I fail as an entrepreneur, um, in investments I've bought, I've failed, um, you know, in all, all areas <laughs> sometimes, you know, the saying, like when you're a salesperson is like every no, you're one step closer to a yes. It's like as frustrating as that is. I don't know if that's actually true, but, um, you know, it's something I kind of have in the back of my mind. Um, okay. I, I failed, you know, the next one, you know, maybe I'm going to, maybe I'm going to hit that one on the park, whatever the situation is. And I think that failure is really important. And I've actually kind of developed a bit of a strategy around this. Um, I've noticed a lot of people in life who fail at business because they don't know anything about business, but yet the skill set they have is so important. So let's say you're a doctor, for example, or you're a plumber. You've never been taught how to run a business. No one told you how to do this. Um, you've taken one or two classes at best, right? And here you are operating a, a clinic or a plumbing company. And you fail because you don't know how to run a business. And this is what I noticed. And so I had a friend who was a plumber and he's an awesome plumber, but struggles to run a business. Like doesn't, doesn't get the bookkeeping side of it and, and raising funds and, and, and all this stuff. And so I said to him, like, why don't we partner up and I'll operate the business and, and you run a plumbing company and, and find plumbers and, and let's get contracts. And so that's what I've done. I've started a company called Vancouver City Plumbing. He's an amazing plumber. I know nothing about plumbing. And, um, and, and it, it all was based out of failure. It was all based out of 
him failing as a plumber because he doesn't have the right, the right partnership. And so I bring the business element to it. And and that's kind of what I'm searching for in the future. Like I want to find the next success, the next failed whoever, and can we partner together to open up some type of business where they're an expert and I'm supporting the business side of it. And so I think in failure, there's incredible opportunity. When you, um, when you consider all that you've achieved and where you are today in your life, and you're still so young and have done so much, do you have a definition for you and your family or for you yourself in terms of success? If you were, if somebody says, how do you define success? Do you have an answer for that? You know, I think, I think in years past, I was much more specific about this, you know, like in rain, we talk about our personal beliefs and, and designing kind of this, this life. And, and I think I have become a little bit less specific about that. And I define it as freedom to me. Uh, and for me, success is being able to do the things that I'm called to do and do the things I love to do and not have to be concerned about getting to work on time necessarily or being employed by this organization to make an income. And so I don't, I don't live in a place right now where I have full freedom. I still need employment. I still depend on an income. And so I'm looking for forward to the day where I have full freedom. But that, that for me, I think is in a general sense of what success would look like. When you talk about freedom, of course, I think about freedom in general in a country called Canada. Let me ask you this question. When you went to Nicaragua and you saw and dealt or, or, or experienced what you experienced, did you come back with a greater appreciation for the freedom that we have just overall as Canadians? Yeah, absolutely. I've traveled a lot. I've been to 36 countries. And, and I think that one thing that I realized the first time I left when I was like 18 and I moved to New Zealand, the first thing I realized is that New Zealand's an amazing place. And but living in BC is, I don't know that there's anything better. And, and the, we're so blessed to be here. And so when you, when you go to a place like Nicaragua or like Morocco or South Africa or something, it's like, you're just not safe anywhere. Like, how can someone live in this environment? And, and, um, and, I, and I feel for the people and think, wow, like the daily grind is intense. And, and it, the gratefulness that I experience every day. And, and, and truthfully, um, you know, the freedom we have is amazing. And it is really something I'm grateful for daily. Someone asked me about vacation once in an interview and like, how do I vacation or something like that? And I was like, I vacation every day. I ride my bike to work between my house and UBC is a big ocean and I ride beside it. And that's a vacation. Like it's a vacation when I ride to work. It's a vacation when I come home. It's a vacation when I see the sunset. Like to me, every one of these moments when you live here, it's really can be like that. Like when you live in one of the most amazing places in the world, how could you not be thankful and grateful for the amazing place we live and the freedom that we, that we get to engage with? It's incredible. It is, you know, Stephanie and I um, live in British Columbia. Well, we're bi-provincial Alberta, BC, but we spend a lot of time, of course, in British Columbia and we did live downtown Vancouver Yes. Uh, and, and we, did, did you ever, did we, ever? Downtown <laughs> <laughs> we did, and it was amazing. And we actually did not, uh, although we travel for business, I mean, we didn't travel on vacation all that much. And we were sitting there one day going, you know, actually feeling, I don't know, not guilty, but we we're going, gosh, you know, I don't feel like going anywhere. I mean, we live in a city where we would walk every day, the seawall and we would talk and you could walk the seawall as you know, and not hear English spoke by anybody in your surrounding area. I was 
languages from all over the world and you realize mm -hmm. that you live in a city that people travel from around the world to come and hang out in. And I thought, why would we want to go anywhere else? But yeah. anyways, we digress. So I do, I do relate really, uh, really well to that. You know, Jared, we could talk forever. Uh, you know, you're just an interesting cat and you've done a lot of really cool stuff, but, uh, we do have to wind down the show a little bit. And, uh, in everyday millionaire kind of tradition, uh, we fire off, uh, what I call just some rapid fire questions that often aren't all that rapid, but we'll, dig into them anyways, because <laughs> they're just fun. And uh, so I'm going to ask you one question before that. Tell me something. Do you have, I'm assuming you have a daily practice of, let's say, prayer. Um, I don't know that, but tell me a little bit about daily practice in terms of how you look after yourself. You're often an early riser. Do you work out? I mean, you're very active. Do you have, or do you have a very specific workout program? Do you journal? How do you, how do you wind your day down? Give me some of your kind of uh, daily practices, if you will. Yeah. So, um, I don't work out at the gym. Um, I hate working out and I hate running. And so all of my exercise is through kind of leisure activities, riding my bike to work, or, um, I often go, um, ski touring on Monday mornings by myself, um, or, or with a friend or two, try to basically hike to the top of Mount Seymour and then ski down, do one lap and then come home. And uh, I love to do that. In the summertime, I swim a lot of laps. Um, I love long distance swimming at Kitt's pool. And so I love to do those types of things. Uh, it's all based around uh, activities or hiking or, or whatever. From a more spiritual or emotional perspective, uh, that fully depends on the state of my children. Um, when you have little kids, if they sleep in the night, then I get up early and work and, and pray and read my Bible. And if they don't, then I don't. And uh, that really has an impact. I'm not very routine uh, at all. I don't necessarily have a lot of routine in my life. And so, um, but I do try to read my Bible every day. I try to read my Bible in one year. And so that's kind of one of my goals. And so sometimes that's listening while I'm riding my bike or sometimes that's reading. I do pray while I'm doing exercises a lot. Um, I do spend lots of time playing music and worshiping. Um, I don't meditate. I don't journal. I don't do yoga. These are all things I'd love to do, but I just cannot get my mind around it. And I actually sometimes feel guilty about that. I'm like, why can't I do these things? Like everyone seems to be really into it. And I'm like, I just get, I get so bored. And so I kind of found my own thing that, <laughs> that works well for me. <laughs> well, it's obviously working, you know, interesting. And I, without going down a rabbit hole, you know, you say you don't meditate. And to me, uh, prayer is just another form of meditation. And, sure. yeah. and so yeah, I, I, I look at individuals who, uh, you know, pray on a regular basis. And, and to me, that's just meditation. That's just another mm -hmm. form of meditation connecting, mm -hmm. you know, outside. So anyways, um, let's get into some rapid fire questions. Now, aside from the Bible, and this isn't going to be a tough one for you because you don't like to read, but is there a favorite book that you've read or that you would share with people? From a business perspective, I often um, share rain books. Uh, so Real Estate Investment in Canada is like the first book I give everybody by Don Campbell. Um, Rich Dad, Poor Dad was a big impact on me. And then a couple books by Tim Ferriss. I think the four-hour work week was really life-changing for me and just kind of understanding that there's a different way to do things. Cool. What do you want to hear God say when you get to the gates? I want him to say, I want him to hear that I um, that I live sorry I want him to say that I lived fully committed to him and to my family on a scale of one to ten how weird do you think you are <laughs> I think I'm like if ten is high being super weird I think I'm like two but if you ask other people they'll probably say I'm like a nine out of ten and weird I don't know after this interview <laughs> I don't think you're weird at all not that I ever did. Um, <laughs> 
room desk or your car, what do you clean first? I'm a neat freak, so it doesn't ever get dirty. There's no need to clean it. Oh, look at you go. Do you have a favorite tune, being the musician that you are? <laughs> My favorite song is Chameleon by Herbie Hancock. I'll ask you this question anyways. Uh, do you have a favorite swear word? No, I don't swear either. I think swearing is uneducated. <laughs> there is, you know something? Uh, there is that view of the world. And um, I'm, I, you know, I must be the dumbest person on the planet given that. Um, <laughs> I know that's like a super pretentious and like prideful thing to say, but yeah, I'm yeah. just being honest here. Well, no, that's perfect. <laughs> because there is that, you know, I've, I've actually uh, have made that statement myself, but I just think that there's some curse words that are just so valuable. They're even sometimes <laughs> cathartic. <laughs> yeah, and, and you know, I want to I want to clarify something on that. Something that's an interesting discussion. I don't. Um, some people think I, I don't swear because of my religious beliefs. That has nothing to do with it. I don't think God cares if I swear or not. Um, it has fully to do with um, what I believe. I uh, how I want to present myself. That's all. Well, you know, and, and I think that's. And I get that totally. And I years ago, I read a quote. Um, I don't remember who said it, but somebody made the statement, somebody that I kind of admired, uh, didn't know them, but admired their writing or whatever it was. And she had said that people who curse, use, you know, swear, just don't have a very strong command of the English language. Exactly. And, um, and I, I took that to heart. And for the longest time, I really backed off on using that language. But yeah, I, I, I digressed, I guess. <laughs> because <laughs> There's, um, like, uh, so there, so for example, I've never tasted alcohol in my life. For, I've never drank anything. Mm. And, um, and, and it's kind of like for me swearing, it's not something that I really find any benefit in. So I've never been interested in it. And that's super weird for a lot of people. Like I, I you know, I used to live in France and they thought I was crazy and I just don't see a, a benefit in it. Uh, it's nothing to do with whether I think it's right or wrong. It's just for me, not down, but my wife, no, she's going to get mad at me if I say this, but she hits the booze hard. Well, that's a joke, Ashley. That's a joke. I know that's so not true, but I'm sure she, <laughs> I'm sure she enjoys a glass of wine. Okay, this is a great question for you, although we talked about it a little bit already. What are you grateful for? I'm grateful for uh, the opportunities which God has given me. And I think one thing I pray for is opportunity. If opportunity is there, opportunity to have a great relationship with your family and wife, opportunity to have great friends, opportunity for business, uh, how can one complain if opportunity is presented to you? Jared Vaughn, I'm incredibly grateful to have had this conversation with you today. Uh, you're a wise, wise man and uh, certainly wise beyond your years from my perspective. And I'm grateful for living in British Columbia. I'm grateful for my wife, my family, my grandchildren, and uh, living in a, an amazing country. So, Jared, thank you so much for uh, sharing your lessons, your words of wisdom, and your journey. It's been great. Thanks so much, Patrick. It's been awesome being with you today. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. If you found value in the podcast, please take the time to rate and review and share with others. Share with your friends. As it is my goal to always improve and to provide the highest value for you, the listener, if you have any comments, suggestions, or questions you'd like answered, please email me at ceo at raincanada.com. That's ceo at reincanada.com. I look forward to hearing from you. And until next time, Patrick out.